open, outspoken. It's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Woods. If I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. Although most commonly attributed to Sir Isaac Newton, this quote communicates a concept that is very relatable to me and probably to most in ophthalmology. As we move forward through our own personal victories and the successes we enjoy as a field, we recognize that progress is a collective effort. And although many play a part, there are always those giants, those who stood tall and blazed the trails before us, and who contributed their wisdom so we too could grow wise. One such giant is Dr. Dick Lindstrom. In this episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid, I sat down with Dr. Lindstrom to discuss his immeasurable contributions to the field, the evolution of eye care throughout his career, and his predictions for the future generations of ophthalmologists. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon. Today, I'm very, very just honored and thrilled to have a hero of mine, a colleague and a mentor, someone we all look up to, Dr. Dick Lindstrom. And uh, Dick, I just have to say, I really appreciate you taking some time to talk to us about um, where your career has taken you over the past uh, number of, of years, where you see ophthalmology now, maybe how it's changed. And um, you know, we'd just love to pick your brain and get some words of wisdom uh, from you. And so uh, with that said, thanks so much for, for coming on today. Oh, well, thank you, Gary. I, I kind of got into ophthalmology uh, indirectly in a sense, and the same for, for medicine. I was on my way to join the family business, and most people know I've had a, a business interest. We have a family business in insurance restoration construction, and I was being groomed to do that. And uh, I just happened to be in the honors division at uh, the University of Minnesota College of Liberal Arts and randomly got the dean of the medical school as my advisor. So one thing is some things, uh, you know, don't, don't always happen through planning. Sometimes they happen through uh, serendipity. But uh, one of the other things is uh, when an opportunity presents to be willing to take the risk and say yes to it. And so I said yes to medicine, and then when I was in uh, medical school, a young professor, Don Doofman, who uh, first came from Harvard to our department right after his fellowship with Claus Dolman and cornea, picked me out to work in his laboratory on corneal preservation, and that got me started into ophthalmology and even into cornea. So again, I, I wasn't necessarily pursuing ophthalmology. Uh, in a sense, ophthalmology found me, but again, I, uh, I either had the, the wisdom or the good luck to... Uh, you know, to say yes to the opportunity. And I, I would say for, you know, some of the younger ophthalmologists, that's, uh, that's something just to think about. I, I would say sometimes uh, uh, the, the slogan is just say no, but I, I would say just say yes as, as opportunities present, even though they may occasionally be a little bit scary or intimidating or something that uh, you haven't uh, thought through that you might be wanting to do or not do, say yes to the opportunity. And, and Gary, I think you're an example of that when you said yes to the opportunity to uh, develop a new product. And it's been, uh, as it always is, an adventure and a, and a learning experience, uh, I'm sure, as you've gone along. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you're exactly right. It's just sort of like putting yourself into the Brownian motion of the universe. If you're around good people and you're working hard and trying to keep your nose clean, um, sometimes opportunities just sort of present themselves. And how did that conversation go with your family when you said, you know, I know we've got this tremendous opportunity, but I'm going to go a different path. How did, how did that go? Well, it was bad at first. <laughs> I'm probably one of those few... Uh... 
few uh, sons whose father disowned them when I told them I was going to go to medical school. <laughs> uh, he'd had the, uh, I'd been following him around to work since I was 12 years old and grew up in the construction business. And uh, he had in mind for me to join him. But it's funny how the work, the way things worked out. So, you know, 30 years later, when he was ready to retire, as it often is, it's difficult to transition a family business. And I ended up actually acquiring the business from him. So I was his exit strategy and sort of secured his retirement. And uh, I, as an aside, one thing a lot of people don't know, I guess, is I'm the chairman and CEO of a construction company. What? Uh, and, uh, <laughs> in, so addition, an in addition to all the other things where, you're doing? <laughs> Yeah, where if you have fire, water, or wind damage, you know, to your home, you call your insurance company, and we fixed it. So it's a, a business my father started right after the war. I grew up in it, and I've now been the chairman and CEO of that business for 20 years. And my president, chief operating officer, is my son, who went off and got a degree in construction management. And my brother and my sister's son uh, have also worked in the business. And so uh, that, that's that been a, a nice sidelight. And uh, as I said... Uh, uh, it ended up working out that uh, exactly the outcome that my father wanted uh, ended up happening indirectly. I ended up uh, owning the business and being the chairman and CEO. And uh, along the way, he uh, he got to have his younger son work with him side by side and then later sell the business to his older son. So That's great. Again, things have a way, way of working out sometimes in, a, in an unexpected but amazing positive fashion. Yeah. Wow. That's that's very interesting, Dick. I had no idea, and I don't know where you find time to do all the stuff you do in ophthalmology, let alone run a construction company. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that being said, um, I'm sure you do a great job at that as well. So, you know, it's it's interesting for me, you know, I, I didn't really choose ophthalmology starting off in medicine. I thought I was going to be a trauma surgeon and, you know, I, I've, ophthalmology kind of presented itself to me and I just have been so enamored with it ever since I, I first found ophthalmology. You know, as you have the the perspective looking back from the time you started till now, what are some areas that you feel like ophthalmology maybe outperformed your wildest dreams uh, when you were just starting? You know, you, you look back to when you started. Where What are we doing now that you never dreamed we might be doing in your career? Well, we're doing many things that I never would have uh, dreamed we would do when I started in ophthalmology. My and I think cataract surgery probably is the poster boy of that. So I'll, I'll restrict my comments to cataract surgery. But the uh, advances that we've seen in uh, in retina and glaucoma uh, and certainly creation of a whole new field in refractive surgery, right. which didn't even exist when I started, have been amazing. But uh, just to give a little history for some of the younger ophthalmologists, I, I was trained uh, during my residency to do intracapsular cataract extraction in the main operating room at the University of Minnesota, a full day of surgery, which was eight hours, was four cases. Wow. So we did one cataract surgery every two hours. Uh, and those patients were admitted to the hospital for seven days. So they were in, in the inpatient uh, hospital uh, unit. Uh, every morning we would be going to make rounds. Our, our corneal transplants were in the hospital for 10 days, and our cataract patients were in the hospital for uh, seven days, if you can imagine that for cataract surgery. Wow. And we were doing intracapsular cataract extraction and fitting the patients with aphic spectacles. And a, a typical patient would be 2070, 2080 in the better eye and 2200 in the worse eye when we might uh, think about doing surgery. Uh, and, uh, you know, the outcomes were not great. Uh, the complication rate was significantly higher and it was a lot of morbidity. 
And if we look at uh, the cost, if you were to today to do uh, in the main OR at a, at a large uh, community hospital or a university hospital, spending two hours in the OR and then putting somebody in the hospital for a week, it would probably be about $40,000 to $50,000 for cataract surgery. Uh, meanwhile, you know, we're doing an operation uh, where people are seeing well the next day without glasses uh, right. in uh, 10 uh, to 20 minutes uh, and uh, a couple post-operative visits uh, with a much higher success rate. Uh, and, and if there is a poster boy for what uh, the triple aim of, uh, of what our government says they want, which is uh, they want us to generate high-quality outcomes, they want us to generate highly satisfied patients, and they want to do it uh, at progressively reduced costs. I think there's no better example, actually, than, than cataract surgery. So it's amazing. And, you know, as far as refractive surgery, there was no refractive surgery. The only refractive surgery that I did was a, uh, an intra-incisional corneal relaxing incision in my corneal transplants that had high astigmatism. But uh, this was pre-RK and pre-laser, uh, eczema laser, pre-femtosecond laser. Uh, and so advances in ophthalmology have been extraordinary. And, you know, we're really blessed to be in a field that is still actually supporting innovation. Uh, we have a very uh, uh, good opportunity still to, to be able to apply those innovations to our patients. And, uh, and in many cases, uh, have patients reimburse us directly for it, which uh, has allowed our, our profession to be somewhat independent of some of the more negative changes that have occurred in the, uh, in the practice of medicine. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was I was speaking to Manus Kraft uh, the other day, and he mentioned something that I really wasn't aware of, and I'd love to get your, your take on this. He said that back in his earlier days in practice, really to innovate, you had to be the chairman of an academic center to really feel like you had the ability to do something that was a little bit different than the mainstream. And it seems like nowadays we have a lot of people in private practice who are leading the charge of innovation. Um, is that something that you witnessed or that you saw that tide turn in your career, or is that maybe a little bit geographically disparate? No, I think it has turned in the last uh, 50 years. Many of you may be aware that I spent 10 years in full-time academics. I was a full professor and ran the cornea service at the University of Minnesota. I had an endowed chair. I was actually the Harold G. Shea Research Chair. Uh, so I, you know, I pretty much have seen in, uh, seen the academic side of the world. And it's still fair to say that a significant amount of uh, good research and innovation occur in, in the university medical centers. But uh, there is also now a great deal of uh, research, uh, particularly applied research and translational research, where we're taking bench research to the clinic uh, and uh, applying it to patients that's occurring in private practice. And you know, I train fellows, and I've been training fellows since I was an academician at a university and have continued in private practice. And what I tell my fellows is that, uh, you, know, you know, an academic mindset is, is not uh, based on location. It's really, you know, based on individual initiation. And so uh, you can do great uh, research and make huge contributions to uh, ophthalmology out of private practice. And we've got extraordinary examples of that, even in cataract surgery from Charlie Kelman to others that have designed uh, all the interocular lenses. I mean, really, most of the advances in cataract surgery, the poster boy that I mentioned, they did not come out of academic centers. The academic centers were 
actually the resistance of those changes are really in the in the cataract field and also pretty much in the refractive field. Most of the innovations have come out of uh, private practice. In glaucoma and retina, there's certainly been a lot of innovation out of universities, but not so much in, in bread and butter, cataract, and refractive, and that's probably because most of it is done in the private setting. Right, right. So you mentioned that you feel like cataract surgery really is the poster boy for um, exceeding expectations. I think we would all agree with that. How was your transition from intracapsular surgery where you're admitting patients to this paradigm shift of FACO? Um, you know, I understand that in the early days of FACO, it was a rough road to get FACO to where it is now. Do you have any stories of, of, of your journey trying to, you know, learn FACO or, or, and when, at what point did you realize that, wow, FACO really is the future for cataract surgery? Yeah, well, I, I did it kind of in, uh, uh, you know, learn how to swim by throwing into the, by th- being thrown into the lake or ocean. So, so I finished my uh, uh, residency at Minnesota, and then I did a year of fellowship in Cornea, and they were wanted me to come back on the faculty and basically run run the Cornea service, which I ended up doing. But I uh, I really uh, had gotten a little bit of an introduction to the fact that there were other ways to do cataract surgery than what I had been trained in. Uh, and so I went down to uh, Dallas, Texas, and a lot of stories that I can tell starting from that, but I get, get, get a couple of them to the group. I went down to Dallas, Texas and worked with a gentleman whose name was Bill Harris, who was early into phaco emulsification and poster chamber lenses. Right across the hall was uh, Charlie Key. So I left that university where we did four intracaps uh, uh, a day uh, in, uh, in a... Uh, a uh, major university hospital, and basically went to a setting where they were doing uh, a cataract every 30 minutes in an ambulatory surgery center. So instead of doing, you know, three in a day, uh, they were doing 16 to 20 in a day. They were doing phaco emulsification. They were putting in posterior chamber lens implants. This was 1977, so very early. Uh, and, uh, and I just was like, uh, I couldn't believe it. You know, it's like I'd gone to a different planet. Uh, from the planet that I had trained on. Uh, and uh, so that was just an amazing uh, immersion. So I went, you know, in a fellowship training setting. I, I, I did a fellowship with with uh, the group. I worked at a little ambulatory surgery uh, center called Mary Shields Hospital in Dallas and, uh, and learned how to do FACO. So I went straight from intracap to FACO. Uh, and, uh, and then later actually uh, got uh, to be... Uh, talented, if you will, in uh, extracapsular surgery, too. Uh, and so that was just, uh, you know, an extraordinary uh, jump, if you will. Right. And, uh, and at that time, that was when Steve Shearing was into innovating his poster chamber lens, and Bob Sinsky and Charlie Kelman and Dick Kratz were teaching uh, uh, FACO courses, and uh, uh, John Sheets was a busy Dallas Texan uh, surgeon, and, and Jim Little, and these guys were all you know, we're all kind of one percenters. They were, you know, small number of people. Uh, and it was actually that, that year that the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery was founded, uh, you know, by a young ophthalmologist out on the uh, West Coast, Kenny Hoffer. Uh, and, and that whole story is now uh, bringing us to this year, which is the 50th anniversary of, uh, of uh, the invention of phaco emulsification. But these, uh, you know, people were characters, and, and we've seen similar characters as innovators in, in other settings. But uh, this was kind of, I think, to some extent, the beginning 
of innovation in private practice because all of these innovations uh, occurred in uh, private practice. Uh, and there was minimal regulatory barrier. And so a total difference from today is that we would sit down and we would say, you know, this, this would be an interesting way to make a posterior chamber lens. I actually invented my first posterior chamber lens in 1978. I was sitting down with a few of my older colleagues and I said, well, I'd like to angulate it a little bit and like it to have PMMA loops rather than uh, polypropylene loops. And I'd like to color the loops and, and actually, believe it or not, the company I was working with uh, at the time, one was Sergio Dev and one was iLab, they had a prototype for me in a week. Oh, my so one week, One week later, my invention was being implanted into patients, <laughs> and then I made a few little modifications, and then uh, uh, two months later, they made it available for other people to buy. Are you uh, kidding if they me? wanted it. So it's a little different world than the one you're dealing with today. Yeah. Uh, and maybe, maybe that was uh, too avant-garde, and, and we should have a little bit more regulation than that, although right. we were using proven methods and the like, but it was just a whole different environment. And, it, and you know what? We, we didn't hurt people. We were as uh, responsible as, uh, uh, as probably as we are today. Uh, it turns out that we doctors are not going to do anything that is not in our patient's best interests. And, and you know what? Our, our colleagues are not going to uh, adopt anything that's not in the best interest of their patients. And I don't think we really did much, uh, much worse than we uh, than we do today with all the costs and regulatory barriers. But I, I think today it would probably be hard for fake emulsifications to ever get a, a approval. And I don't know if the early posterior chamber lenses would have ever made it either uh, in the current regulatory environment. The barriers might have just been too great. Right, right. And, and that's interesting. You know, it's sort of a right place, right time, right people. Um, and, and now we benefit from the challenges that were overcome in that environment. And uh, you know, part of this part of this interview is really telling the story so that younger ophthalmologists like myself, who weren't maybe around for all those fights or weren't around for for that that period of time, can appreciate the work that some of the guys like you and others have done that have delivered ophthalmology to us. And and now you know, sort of in the next you know few decades. It's going to be up to, to a newer generation of ophthalmologists to further advance the ball down the field. And so, but it's, it's always important to look back at, and see, you know, and respect the, the battles that were fought for you on your behalf, maybe even before you realized it. With that in mind, where do you see, um, we're talking about unmet needs and innovation and, and sort of advancing the, the profession. As you look at ophthalmology today, where do you see the biggest unmet needs or where would you predict that our field has the greatest opportunity to advance maybe the next, you know, 20 to 50 years? Well, there's, uh, you know, still unlimited opportunity for advancement. And uh, I'll give a, I'll, I'll stick with cataract surgery a little bit because it still is the most common, you know, operation that we all do. We do uh, about uh, 4 million cataract operations a year today in America. And for those of you who are younger surgeons, it's, it's growing uh, at about 3 to 4% a year, which means that in about 20 to 25 years, we'll be doing about 8 million cataract operations a year in America. Uh, and uh, we'll have slightly smaller number of surgeons to do it. Uh, as I do the numbers every year, uh, about 50 to 100 uh, more ophthalmologists retire than are trained. And so every year there's uh, less of us. And so I would say that the young uh, ophthalmologist coming out of training today uh, is going to be doing just in cataract twice as many 
uh, as they uh, are today, uh, and there'll be less of them. So they're going to, again, have to become uh, very efficient and very effective. On a positive note, I've continued to train fellows, uh, you know, starting 40 years ago. And I would say, uh, and I mean this sincerely, the, the, the fellows that I'm getting to train today are, you know, brighter, more talented, better educated uh, than they've ever been. So I, I'm not one of those that is worried about the, uh, the next generation. I'm extraordinarily impressed with the, with the next generation. Of course, I have two children myself that are 34 and 30, and I'm extraordinarily impressed with them and their, their spouses as well. But the, the fellows that we're training are, are better, brighter, more talented uh, than they've ever been. Uh, they uh, also, in my opinion, have uh, strong work ethics. I think they're a little more balanced than we were uh, in that they uh, uh, maybe have a greater appreciation that they aren't going to dedicate 100% of their time to uh, ophthalmology, which we might have done uh, more than we should have. And so hopefully they'll have even a little more balanced lives as far as family lives go. But right. uh, we're going to have great doctors. You know, I'm not, I'm not worried about uh, my cataract surgery being done. I've got eight partners, all of whom are spectacular, that I would be only too happy to have do my cataract surgery. And I, I, I see younger doctors, and you're in a, a good example, but I can give you a whole bunch of examples and uh, that are continuing to innovate and are continuing to invent. And I think the fact that it's better and easier to do it in private practice today, it gives more people the opportunity. So, so I'm optimistic. So, so let's just say cataract surgery you know what are we going to be what are we going to be doing uh, in the next uh, in the next generation if we will we're we're going to be doing office based cataract surgery it's going to be bilateral same day sequential uh, cataract surgery so you're going to do both eyes the same day in an office setting which will reduce the cost somewhat uh, and i think reduce the regulatory barrier uh, and uh, we uh, i think are going to move away from fake emulsification i think we're going to have some advanced methods that will allow us to uh, soften uh, a lens so it can simply be aspirated with a simple aspirating device, which will be uh, less expensive. And uh, the classical 50-year anniversary now of ultrasound, we won't need ultrasound anymore. Right. That will reduce endothelial cell loss and make the surgery safer. And then uh, through a, a small incision, we're going to put in an intraocular lens that will be uh, a adjustable, accommodating, uh, intraocular lens. And so you'll be able to uh, adjust to a uh, plano sphere and probably eliminate uh, any meaningful higher order aberration and that lens implant uh, will accommodate. And when, when that starts to happen, then people are going to want to have their cataract surgery, in quotes, uh, uh, done uh, as soon as they become meaningfully presbyopic, which will be about age 50. Right, uh, And so I, I've seen us go from uh, an average age for cataract surgery of 77 down now into the 66, 67. Uh, it's going to move its way down into the early 50s. And, and it will be this dysfunctional lens syndrome concept. The uh, definition of a cataract has changed extremely during my career. But the definition of the future is going to be probably loss of accommodation, a little bit of loss of contrast. And you've got a cataract and you might as well get you know, an adjustable, accommodating intraocular lens that, right. uh, you know, will make you see better than you ever did in your life. And so, uh, and when that happens, it's probably going to be, uh, you know, it's probably going to be, uh, you know, even a larger number than the projected 8 million. There might be 10 million cataract operations a year being done by about 7,000 cataract surgeons. So the average American cataract surgeon, the average 
American cataracts or anything's going to have to do 1,500 cataracts a year. Right. Uh, so they're going to have a ton, a ton of work, uh, you know, to do. So they'll they'll be busy, and and the outcomes will be even better than they are now. So it'll be a very rewarding field. And meanwhile, very similar changes will come along in refractive surgery and in glaucoma and in retina, et cetera. So, you know, the future is uh, extraordinary for the uh, for the ophthalmologist, and we're going to be a scarce resource, so we're going to be in demand. And yeah. since these surgeries will be taking place uh, in the 50s, uh, most of them, I think, will be cash pay. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're probably uh, exactly right. And what a great outlook! I mean, it's it's really incredible. You know, I'm just to think about that as being a reality where the next boom. You know, we sort of had that LASIK boom um, in the late '90s, early 2000s, where you had a, a buildup of patients uh, who were sort of waiting and ready for a new procedure to help them. And when this new lens technology catches up to the unmet needs, I think you're exactly right. We will have a, a boom uh, of, of patients who are, are waiting and ready, willing, and able to, to uh, have that procedure done. And you're right, bilateral, I think, is coming. Office base is, uh, is kind of already here in some ways. Um, and, it, you know, I agree with you. I think the outlook for ophthalmology is incredibly bright. But, Dick, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that it's only bright because we've been led by some of the nicest, smartest people on the planet. Um, and, and you are definitely um, on the list of the giants who have helped drive our profession forward. So for all the contributions you've made to our field, um, to me personally and, and for a lot of other folks that are mutual friends, just want to say thank you for committing yourself to making this field what it is and uh, every day trying to make it a little better. You are welcome. Proud to be a part of it. Awesome. Well, Dick, thanks Thanks for spending some time with us today, and uh, we will have you on again at, at any time you'd like, okay? All right. I thank you a lot. Thanks. Take care. Particularly as a young ophthalmologist, I have to thank Dick for paving the way and sharing the wisdom and experience he brought today and every day. Fortunately for us, Dick stands in good company with several other giants in the field. We'll hear from them next time on Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Thanks for tuning in, and if you like what you hear, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. This has been Dr. Gary Wirtz. See you next time. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon.